Well, after college, um, Jason Seville and I went to uh, California. We drove there in a Jeep, lots of interesting stories along the way, but we went to San Diego and we were there for the summer doing campus ministry where we partnered uh, with a campus ministry that would basically do evangelism on different college campuses. We'd be on different campuses throughout the, throughout the summer. And it was a really interesting phenomenon that we discovered, discovered during our, our first stint at one of the campuses. I, I think it was UC San Diego, but we were going there, we would share the gospel with people, and, you know, of course, some people didn't want to hear it, but we, we began to see some real fruit where there's some people who were responding to, to Christ and to the good news of the gospel, and they wanted to talk more, and we would huddle up and do some Bible studies and this kind of stuff, and it would be kind of a regular thing where we would meet up a couple times a week and all this kind of stuff. Well, on one particular campus, we noticed that all of a sudden, most of the people that we were meeting with just, it was like all of a sudden they just didn't want to talk anymore. Uh, they would ghost us when we were trying to reach out to them. We wouldn't, if we saw them, they would kind of act cold toward us. And it was, it was, it was interesting, to say the least. Well, one day we were walking around and we saw a bunch of them all sitting together at a table. And we went over and said, hey, how are you guys doing? And it was very cold. And one of the other people that we hadn't met before said, hey, we're going to have to ask you to leave them alone. And we're like, hey, man, no beef here. Let's see what's going on. And come to find out that this person worked for another campus ministry that was a cult. And what they had been doing was that they were following around people who were having spiritual conversations, and they were following up with them and saying, hey, those people that are, they're lying to you, here's the truth, and they began to collect them, and they were pulling people away from faithful gospel witness. And that whole summer was, it felt like a real spiritual battle between faithful gospel proclamation and these, this, this cult-like group that was kept wooing people away from, from devotion to Jesus. That same scenario is basically what's happening in 2 Corinthians. Paul and the apostles have been, had been ministering the word there in Corinth, and then these false apostles, Paul calls them super apostles, they kind of swoop in and they, they start you know, throwing shade at Paul and his ministry and the other apostles, and they start duping these people and leading them away with another false gospel. That danger was real for them as it is for us. There are deceivers who, who seek to woo away people from pure devotion to Christ. It's a real danger for those that we minister to, and it's a real danger for our own affections. As we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning, we are going to see a strong word from God about the danger of partnering with darkness. We must have nothing to do with the darkness so that our devotion to Christ can remain pure. And the way that we, the way that we have strength to do that is according to God's promises. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you 
and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The message for us this morning is this. Flee from fellowship with darkness by pursuing God's promises in faith. Flee from fellowship with darkness that is constantly wooing us in all different forms. We'll talk about some of those this morning. And the way we do it is by pursuing promises in faith. As we see in this text here, God lays out promises before us. We pursue them by faith. We listen to his voice and his promises rather than the promises that the world offers us and tries to woo us with. The way we're going to approach this this morning is, is kind of in two sections. The, the first is going to be verses 4 through 16, where we're going to see the call to resist partnering with darkness. Resist partnering with darkness. This by far is going to be the longest section. Secondly, we're going to look at verses 16, the second half of 16 through 7-1, respond to God's promises. Respond to God's promises so flee from fellowship with darkness by pursuing God's promises in faith. First and foremost, resist partnering with darkness. Here, verses 14 and 16. As we saw here in 14 through 16, there is, there is a clear command followed by reasons to obey. And then we get these promises to, to fuel our obedience. So, so here's the command, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is a command regarding relationships between believers and unbelievers. And to help us to understand what he's trying to communicate here, he uses some, some imagery of a yoke. Now, some of y'all ain't for the country, and you don't know what a, what a yoke is. So a yoke is a, it's a wooden frame that hitches two animals together. So typically this is used for like two horses or two donkey or two oxen. And you would put it around the neck of one oxen and around the, the neck of the other oxen to harness their power, right? So that, that they, can, they can pull together and plow a field. That's, that's the imagery that is, that's used here. It's, a, it's, an, it's an image used metaphorically for, for working together. So I don't know where my parents got it, but growing up in our house, we had a yoke over a fireplace, and the reason it was there is my parents said it was, it was intended to be a, a symbol of our family that we're, we're working together. We're, we're working together. We're, we're, we're locked in and we're, we're working together. Well, that's, this is an image that's used throughout the scripture. Paul uses it here. Jesus used it. I don't know if you remember this in Matthew chapter 11, where he's talking to the people who are under the yoke of legalism with the religious leaders of the day, and he calls them out from that. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, don't, don't be yoked with shame and guilt and sin and legalism, but rather come to me and yoke yourself to me. And I will give you grace and strength so that you can walk in step with me and not in step with, with the world. So Paul uses this, this, this imagery of, of a yoke here, but he uses it in something to not do. 
right? It's, it's a warning here to not be yoked with unbelievers in a common purpose. Don't be yoked with unbelievers. And again, so to be unequally yoked is you get two animals, as it were, of different strengths and different staminas. And if you have that, they're going to pull in different directions. It's going to hinder the progress that is, that is to be made. So to be unequally yoked means to, to, to hinder the purpose because the, the, you're, hit, you're hitched for. You're supposed to plow the field. Well, if you've got like a, you got a mini goat, or what? Yeah, you put a goat and an oxen together. Well, that, that poor goat is the end for him. <laughs> That's a sad picture. But if you have a little, if you have a little oxen and a bigger oxen, it's gonna, this oxen's going to pull harder and it's going to be all over the place. He's using that imagery here of don't partner with unbelievers because y'all are not heading in the same direction. There's, there's, a, there's a danger here. Now, what does he mean by, by un, unbelievers and not yoking with them? So he's talking about uniting with, partnering with, being in a relationship with unbelievers in a way that slows or stifles or stalls your walk with God. Now, unbeliever. Well, just to be really clear, the Bible presents two kinds of people in the world. God divides the world into two types of people. He doesn't do it uh, along ethnic lines. He doesn't do it along gender lines. He doesn't do it along political lines or economic lines. He divides them between spiritual lines. There are believers and there are unbelievers. There are children of darkness and children of light. Children of the devil, children of God. Offspring of Satan, offspring of the woman. Now, I want to be really, really clear. Everyone is born an unbeliever. Nobody is born a Christian. So if you're here this morning, you know yourself to not be a Christian, welcome. I know this is going to be an awkward one. Hang in. We'll, you'll hear how we'll nuance this conversation. This is not us saying we're better than you. This is not us saying that we can't hang out with you. Hang with me. Listen in. But I just want to be really clear. All of us started exactly where you are. So every, this is why Jesus says you must be born again. Because there's something about all of us. We're born sinners. If you don't think that's true, just do some children's ministry. You're going to see that you, need, you don't need to teach any of them to be selfish little liars. That's just not, it's, they just, they're, they're born this way. This is, this is how we come out, right? So, and then we all express sin in a variety of ways, but Jesus says you must be born again. If you, but unbelievers, we know this as believers, because many of us can remember those days, unbelievers think and act in ways that are opposed to God, right? I mean, my entire life before I was a Christian, I became a Christian when I was 21, my entire life before that, the whole thing was about how much sin can I do and not get arrested? That was basically what I was trying to do. 2 Corinthians describes unbelievers this way, 2 Corinthians 4.4, their minds are blinded to the gospel of Christ, that means they can, be a, they can be smarter than anybody else on the planet, but, but the fact, more cultured. But the fact is that unbelievers do not love God and they don't fear God. They don't live and make every decision, every word that they speak, every action that they do, every motive that they have is not done in light of the day of judgment, that I'm going to give an account for this. That's not how unbelievers think. And Paul says in light of that, do not be yoked with unbelievers. Don't, don't work together with them. Don't partner with them. What does he mean by that? Well, before we get into all the nuancing, which we're going to do a lot of that, 
We need to follow his reasoning here to understand why he's saying this. Look again at verse 14. So do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for, you see that? He's going to explain the reason why, and he's going to give us five rhetorical questions with five pairs of opposites. He's, he's asking this to help us to understand why he's saying this, this thing that he is. So he says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? The word partnership means relationship that shares a purpose. He, righteousness is, is conduct that is guided and guarded by God's word. Lawlessness is casting off of those rules to do whatever you want. He says submission to God and rebellion against God do not mix. Everybody knows this. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The word fellowship there is the word koinonia. It's often used for, for Christians and how we love one another and, and, and care for one another. It's a, the word means a mutual sharing of affection for, for one another. There's a warmth. He says what fellowship does light have with darkness? How can the light of the, the new life we have in Christ mix with the old ways? Our old ways were, were darkness. We lied and we deceived and we covered things up. We hid, we plotted evil where, where others wouldn't see it. Christians, we, don't, we strive to not do that. We try to walk in the light as he is in the light. He says purity and perversion don't mix. Verse 15, what accord has Christ with Belial? The word accord there means agreement. What harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial is a, is a Hebrew word that's, that's used for the devil. It, it means wickedness and worthlessness, and it's personified to speak of, of the devil. How can Jesus and Satan agree on anything is what he's saying here. When would Jesus ever say to Satan, hey, you've got a point. That's a good point there. He says that's not going to happen. God and anti-God don't mix. Or what portion sharing together, does a believer share with an unbeliever? Meaning, what, what common ground do Christians and non-Christians have? Now, of, of course, there's lots of things. We can like the same teams. We can like the same color. We can like the same sorts of foods and this kind of stuff. But what sort of ultimate things? Listen, I have, I have non-Christian non friends, but like, we do not agree on where we came from, why we're on the planet, what is right, what is wrong, how we determine what's right and wrong. What happens after you die if all religions are the same? We don't agree on those major things. There's a total disagreement. There's either apathy or antagonism against the, the truths of, of, of the gospel. B believer and unbeliever in that sense don't, don't mix. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? What can the place where God's holy presence, where, where, where his presence dwells, what can it have in common with fake gods who steal worship away from the one true God? God's dwelling place and demonic imposters don't mix. You see what he's doing here? He's laying out these opposites to show darkness and light don't have the most essential things in common. If they're yoked together, they're not going in the same direction. And the force of all this is driven home when he says there, again, verse 16, for we are the temple of the living God. He says we are children of God. Cons consider it. Consider who you are and whose you are. God, the holy creator of the universe, 
If you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sin and trusted in him, you have been born again. His spirit dwells in you. You are his temple. As Christ came as God in the flesh, you are now united to him by his spirit, and, and, and you become the very temple of God. So, so where is the temple of God? It's not this building. It's those who are in Christ. The spirit is in us. He says, this is why you don't lock arms with unbelievers. This is why you don't partner with darkness. It's because God dwells in you, which doesn't make you better than everybody else, but it does make you holy, not in a snooty, snobby way, but in a way that says we love God and we want to please God. We want to not grieve him. He has been so faithful to us. The only right response that I can have is to love him and honor him. This is the, the picture that's presented for us. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, Christians face constant temptation to compromise God's commands and our convictions for holiness in order to partner with the world. So what I'm going to do now is spend maybe too much time walking through the way that we do this. All right? I, I just thought it might be helpful here to, like, hunker down and to, to, to get up and Get up in the business, okay? So we're going to have five ways, five ways here, and there's more, but five ways that we must not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, okay? Number one, do not be unequally yoked with unbelieving false teachers. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelieving false teachers. To be very clear, this is Paul's focus in 2 Corinthians. The point of 2 Corinthians, and this passage in particular, is that he has been warning the Corinthians not to give their heart to false teachers and these super apostles who'd been influencing the church. Paul says, you can't partner with these people who pervert God's word. They take truths out of context. They twist scripture to manipulate people who are weak and who are hurting or who are immature and fleshly. And, and, and they, are, they were demeaning the apostle Paul, what he looked like, what he sounded like, his experiences. All they, could, they did all they could to try and undermine him and his message. It was strikingly similar to, to that, that situation that we had with the, the cult that I turned, talked about at the beginning. Like they would, they would just begin to say all sorts of things about the other gospel ministers who were out there making things up about them. And they would begin to say, no, you can't trust them, and here's the reasons why. It was just, it was fascinating how similar it was to this. There's lots of ways that false teachers prey on the church today. I'm going to just highlight two. There's many, many more. Talk about them over lunch. Number one would be prosperity gospel churches. So do not be unequally yoked with unbelieving false teachers, particularly, number one, prosperity gospel churches. The, the false prophets of Paul's day are, were strikingly similar to people that you might see on TBN. I'm not saying that everybody's on TBN is, is in error, but generally, there's a bunch of false teaching there. And I think in Satan's wise strategy, he mingles in some good people, so that gives a little bit of credibility, which brings conversation about should you partner, and there we go, this is what this is about. So anyway, so you're going to have ministers who claim to have some sort of unique spiritual insight or power, and that if you follow them... And their ability to find some kind of hocus pocus in Hebrew text and be like, did you know that Ra means this and like poof and here you go, now you get a Mercedes? Like, do you, do you know 
He's like, this is, he says, this is dangerous. If you follow them and have just enough faith, so just enough seeds of financial support, that you too can have power to overcome whatever affliction you're in, to achieve whatever prosperity you speak into existence. False prophets in the prosperity gospel world prey upon weak people, hurting people, and new believers. So for instance, how many of you know who Kanye West is? All right, so I'm not saying you should Google him. Don't Google. Actually, the point is he was a rapper. He's world famous. He's, a, he's into designing clothes, all this kind of stuff. Anyway, a couple years ago, he had a conversion experience where he apparently was born again. He put out an album um, that was, has, more, has more Jesus in it than a lot of modern-day Christian hip-hop albums. That's another conversation also. But it was, it was great. His interviews were very good. He was very clear on the gospel. And we come to find out that he was actually being discipled by somebody who was in, in the circles with John MacArthur, that somebody, somebody had, had begun to, to pour into him and had been investing in him and praise the Lord, like getting good gospel teaching, all that kind of stuff, until, until he got an invitation from Joel Osteen. And Joel says, listen, Kanye, you've got this church thing that you do. We've got a crowds of 60,000 people on a Sunday morning why don't you come down here and we'll lock arms and we'll see what we can do for God. I'm not saying that's the only reason Kanye has fallen away from Christ, but I am certain that that didn't help. The sort of people that began to rally around him and lock arms and it's just, it's a strong pull. Now most of us don't feel the tractor beam of the world in the same way that someone as famous as him would, but for all of us, there's a temptation to listen to prosperity teachers. So for instance, in, in general American Christianity, there's a prosperity gospel of the American dream that basically pitches it like this, that if you're going to obey God and do what he says, life will be easy and enjoyable for you. So for instance, if you, if you wait to have sex until you get married, your sex life will be awesome when you get married, when you get married. I've heard people say that kind of stuff before, that, that if you go to church and marry someone who, who goes to church as well and, and, and check all of the boxes, God promises you that your life will be blessed. How many of you have heard that kind of stuff before? All right. How many of you were raised in churches like that? Yeah. You see, the problem is when reality sets in, and you, you, you did all the right things according to what you were supposed to do, as it were. You checked all of the boxes, and then God doesn't show up, and your life is hard, and your marriage is hard, and your sex life isn't what you had, 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 had hoped that it would be, or you don't get children, or what, 50 billion things that could go wrong, all of a sudden you begin to wonder, why didn't God do what he's supposed to do? We've seen plenty of people walk away from the faith with their finger up at God saying, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. God never said he would do that. God, God never promises us the prosperity in this life. Certainly, there are many wonderful things that we get in this life, but he is the gospel. We get him. So we could do more on that. So prosperity gospel churches, that's one thing. You know, I'll be unequally yoked with false believers. Number two, under that one, sexually affirming churches. There are, there are false prophets in our day 
who want to align with the world in this particular agenda of, of saying that sexual liberty, and please, if you're here and, and this irritates you, don't leave. Just listen. I will buy you lunch and talk to you about it. Just hear us out. There is a whole just darkness that has swept over churches that think that if we can just affirm people in their desires, that it's loving them and we're showing them what Jesus would do. Listen, it is not loving to affirm people in sin that will send them to hell. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There are many empty words where people will affirm lifestyle choices in the name of love, saying love is love. Please hear me. I just want you to know, I know that sounds kind and it sounds loving and what I'm probably saying may sound bigoted, but please hear me. Love is not love. God is love. God defines what love is. That is true whether your orientation is toward homosexuality or, or heterosexuality. Everybody is sexually broken and everybody is tempted to go in directions that are not right. God defines what is right. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but there was a member of, uh, a now member of our church who a number of years ago came to our church for a seminar because they heard that there was, um, there was a talk being given about uh, Christianity and same-sex attraction. This person was about to run down the, the highway of, of the, the affirming world where they would baptize whatever you want to do and say that this is pleasing to God. They were, they were ready to go down that, that path, and they actually came thinking that's what the talk was about. They came, and Sam Alberry, who's a faithful gospel minister who himself struggles with same-sex attraction, was very open about his, his, his struggles, but also about what it means to follow Jesus. And that regardless of what your sexual orientation is, everybody who's going to follow Jesus has to give up something and that Jesus is worth whatever it is, and painted a beautiful picture of the gospel and the way forward for the church to be a family and for everything. And to this day, that person would say that that encounter with the true gospel rather than the false gospel of the day saved their life. It is not loving to help people go to hell. Paul would say, do not be unequally yoked with false teachers. We could do much more. Number two. Now, I'll be clear, that's the primary emphasis of the text. But just because something has a primary emphasis does not mean there's not other applications. So let's talk about number two. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelieving friends. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelieving friends. Now, for those of you who are Christians, how many of you have friends who are not Christians? Okay. If you don't, I, please, I want to encourage you to cultivate relationships with, with, with people who don't know the Lord. This text is not saying that you shouldn't associate with, with unbelievers or have no relationship at all with, with non-Christians. Christians are not spiritual snobs. We're not isolating monks. We follow Jesus, and Jesus was known to associate with unbelievers. Listen to this, Luke 7, 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, saying, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
Jesus hung out with unbelievers so much that he got charged with being a friend of sinners, to which he says, what else would a Savior come to do? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. What else would God's people do? Of course. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul to this same group in the, his previous letter says, I wrote to you in my letter, the previous one of that, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all. Meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or their idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He's really, really clear there. He's not telling you not to have non-Christian friends. He said you have to go to Mars. The way of Jesus is not away from unbelievers, but it's toward them. Christians should have meaningful relationship with non-Christians. But you must be a Christian in those relationships. Like if you have non-Christian friends who don't have, who it would baffle them if you're like, hey, I love Jesus. They're like, you do? Like that is not what you're looking for. Walk in the light. Do not be ashamed to, to, to bear the name of the one who died for your sins. And, and we as Christians, when we hear this text, we must hear to be very careful to not allow the values and practices of our non-Christian friends to lead us to compromise. For instance, right after I became a Christian, I came out of a pretty wild background in college. I remember one of the things I felt burdened really early on was I got to share with all my friends who don't know Jesus. So one night, we, they're all like, hey, we're going to go out. Let's go. And I was like, okay. So we go out and we go to a bar. And I was like, okay, I'm going to commit to having one beer. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have one beer. And hung out with them. And they poured me a beer. And I had one beer. And unfortunately, one beer turned into one pitcher. And it, I, I got drunk. And they thought it was great. They thought it was hilarious. They're like, ah, I knew that Jesus thing was just a thing, and like the whole, the whole deal. And I, I mean, I went home deeply grieved. I mean, I love the Lord, but I was too immature to have relationships like that at that point by myself. There's no way I should have put myself in that situation. Now, if I went out with three or four other friends who were mature in the Lord and could lock arms with me and help me to be honorable, that's a different kind of conversation. But I, in my pride, thought I could handle it. It was evident that I could not handle it because of the fruit of what was happening. And to them, it was no big deal. That's why Paul's saying, don't be yoked with them in that. They think you getting drunk is fun. You know God's command is really clear. Do not get drunk with wine. That is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You know that's a sin. Don't lock arms with those who are going to lead you into that. And you could fill in any other kind of sin that you wanted to there. Right? Same sort of thing happens with, um, yeah, yeah, we'll do this one here. So I have so many stories, I'm trying to figure out which ones to do. Um, there's a former member who was baptized here, who was tired of being lonely and, and single. They met a person at work um, who was going through a divorce, and they began dating that person while that person was still married. That's called adultery separation, whatever, it's still, it was adultery. Members from this church pleaded with that person. Pastors from this church pleaded with this person, met with both of them here and had conversations. But all the while, all of their unbelieving friends and unbelieving family were applauding them, 
of how you both get fresh starts and y'all seem so great together and y'all seem so happy together. And they gave their ear to the non-Christian friends who were yoking them in a different direction. And sadly, it led to, to, to church, church discipline and uh, they're, they're not walking with the Lord today. And listen, I'm not blaming it on the non-Christian friends. Non-Christians do what non-Christians do. I can't tell you as a non-Christian how many Christians I tried to get to sin. I thought it was fun. Listen, it is good to have friends who aren't Christians, but those who are closest to us, who shape us the most, who give us advice and influence the most, must not be those who oppose Jesus. Christians must walk wisely with unbelievers, but not be unequally yoked with them in a way that pulls them away from devotion to Christ. I would encourage you to have open conversations with faithful, mature believers about what those relationships look like. Okay? And have real candid conversations with your non-believing friends. I try and do that. I mean, listen, straight up, just so you know, I love Jesus. That may be weird for you, but I am totally following him. We're cool, but I'm just not going to be doing some of the stuff you're going to be doing. And just try and set the tone. So don't be unequally yoked with unbelieving false teachers or unbelieving friends. And thirdly, do not be unequally yoked with unbelieving spouses. Now, how many of you, when you heard this text, this is how you've always heard it's about this. It's about don't date or marry an unbeliever. Okay, yeah. Um, well, it's pretty obvious from the context that that's not the primary point of the text, which does not mean, oh, point, I get to date whoever I want. No, hang in. It undoubtedly applies here in light of what he's saying, right? There is a clear and common theme throughout the scripture that believers should only marry other believers. This is you should only be yoked with fellow believers in marriage. This is true throughout the Old Testament, and it is true throughout the New Testament. Since it would take way too long to read all the stuff in the Old Testament, let me just give you two New Testament passages. 1 Corinthians 7.39, speaking about someone um, getting, getting uh, married after their spouse dies. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married whom she wishes only in the Lord. Do you hear that? You can marry anybody you want, he says, as long as what? They're in the Lord. They're believers. And you're like, oh, well, that's only one verse. Well, first of all, you only need one verse. How many times does God need to say, you know, I mean, like, don't do that like, you know, 50 verses really, oh, that's at scale. No, God says it once, that's enough, right? Do not eat of the tree of the garden. And disobedience led to to everything. So here, I'll give you another one though. 1 Corinthians 9, 5. This is Paul speaking. He says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Peter, the first pope? So um, that's a joke. It was, un, it was a kind, I'm sorry. If you're visiting, I apologize. That was, not, that was not the way to do it. The point though is, he's like, Peter's married. The brothers of the Lord are married. Other apostles are married. He says, I could be married to a believing wife. It is just an expectation that believers would marry believers. Christians must only marry other Christians. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbelieving spouse because they will not pull your heart toward heaven. I have a dear friend who... I knew them when they were a young believer, 
And they were on fire for the Lord. They loved the Lord. And they, they fell in love with someone um, who I, I will just say is a wonderful person, very kind, very thoughtful, all the stuff, but not a Christian. And it has been amazing to watch over the years the way that them being unequally yoked has hindered the other person's faith. Oftentimes we think, well, we're, I'm going to marry an unbeliever. I'm going to help them along. If you've been in Christian circles for a while, you've probably heard the, the, the illustration. If you're standing up here and somebody's down there, and I'm trying, is it easy for me to pull them up or pull me down? It's much easier to be pulled down. And again, this is not some condescending word against non-Christians. We're just saying, like, non-believers are not trying to follow Jesus. They're not going to make going to church a priority. They're not going to make prayer. Like, well, this is what we do. It's not about, about the things that Christians are about. And to watch this person trying to be polite, not pray over meals anymore, because it kind of made their spouse feel a little uncomfortable. When it came to, to, to weekends, the spouse always had other plans to go do something. They were like, hey, listen, you, could, you can go do your thing. But then always having to make that journey by yourself just becomes increasingly difficult. And then the mixed messages that came with the kids and all of the, it's just, I'm not saying you can't be a Christian in that situation. Some of you are in that situation, and God will give grace. But if you're not married, this is intended to be a word of, of warning. As one pastor described it, being married to a non-Christian is like two artists trying to paint two different pictures on the same canvas. You're just not about the same things. Or try, trying to sing two, two different songs at the same time. You're not about the same things. There can't be harmony. So, because Christians are only to marry other Christians, Christians must only date other Christians. Why? Well, because the point of dating is to discern if marriage is a possibility. I'll say that again. The purpose of dating is to discern if marriage is a possibility. Now you're like, did this dude just come from the 1800s? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but <laughs> listen, I get it. I say stuff as a Christian and be like, that sounds so 1800s. Okay, fine. It sounds dated, but I want to be really, really clear. This is a clear biblical principle. Dating is not just about seeing how close you can get in love and entangling all the things that come with emotions and physical stuff and all of that and then tearing that apart and then doing that again and again and again. Some of us, that's our past. That was very much my past. Very much my past. And there's, there's things that, that, that last with that that are difficult. The, the purpose of getting to know a fellow brother or sister in the Lord is to discern, is this the sort of person that I could be married to? Yes, have fun. Yes, figure out. Like, go do fun things, all this kind of stuff. But, but the, on the mind must not be, I'm just, I'm just dating to date. If you're just dating to date, you are too immature to date. I mean that in all love. That is not how Christians treat one another. We want to care for one another's hearts and love one another. Some of you think, oh, that's legalistic. Listen, obedience is not legalism. It's worship. So do not be ashamed to just say, listen, this is, no, I'm not going to do what the world does. Now, and don't, don't give me the, listen, I'm just trying to help them come to know Jesus. Listen, I understand. I, 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 I get it. And yes, I've heard the testimonies. I've heard testimonies. In this room, there are testimonies of unbelievers who are dating believers 
And, and by God's grace, the other person came to know the Lord, and now they walk together as believers. Praise God for all the times that he works despite our disobedience. I, I mean, and, and, and if, you, if that's your story, you know this. You look back and say, we've got nothing but what we don't deserve. God has been so kind to us. But we must not tempt God by playing with temptation. Because for every time we've seen a conversion happen, we've seen it not happen, like my other friend that I was talking about, and, and there's very difficult things that come. Now, this is also where I must say, I acknowledge how difficult it is to be single and to desire to be married. Some of you, that's, that's you this morning. You've been trying to walk with the Lord. You've been trying to remain faithful. You've been, not been perfect, but you've tried. You're trying to trust the Lord, and it is very difficult. And if there's no Christian guy who's going who's gonna to ask you out, or if you're a Christian guy and no Christian girl is willing to go out and get to know you, the pressure to look to the world and to find or just give in to the people who are pursuing you there is very, very strong. I just want to acknowledge that, and I am sorry. I got married much later than I had wanted. Um, sorry, it was my bad. Um, <laughs> I dated another girl. It's a whole other story. But the point is, there was a deep part of me that wanted to be married, and I, I, it was difficult. It was really, really hard. And some of you have endured you know, uh, a singleness that you had not signed up for, as it were, um, longer than what you wished. But you have to be careful. Do not compromise. Don't compromise. It is better to be single with Jesus and his people than to forsake him in order to have someone to hold you and love you and affirm you and all of the things that are, are sweet about relationships. Please guard your heart. Now, how closely do you have to be aligned to consider dating them? So, well, they believe in God. So does Satan. I'm not saying they're Satan. I'm just saying, please, come on. That is not the lowest common denominator, okay? Please. Christians, do not date Muslims. Muslims, if you're here, do not date Christians. You do not believe this. this you don't have the same God. You don't have the same way of being saved. No. Also, to believe in Jesus is not enough. Muslims have a Jesus. Mormons have a Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses have a Jesus. And one of the most common temptations that I see, I'm just doing all this today, so this is that sermon, okay? <laughs> one of the most common temptations that I see, particularly for Christian sisters, is to date Catholic men. Now, if you're here and you're visiting the Catholic, we're very thankful that you're here. Happy to talk to you about some of the differences between what you believe and what Christians believe. And I'm not saying that people who are in the Catholic Church aren't necessarily Christians. It would be in spite of what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, not because of it. So one of the dangers that comes here is sisters would love to be asked out by a godly man, and that's not happening, but at work or school or wherever they are, they're surrounded by Catholic guys who, who believe in God, who believe in the Bible, who have real moral, like, compass, who oftentimes share same convictions on all sorts of things, and in light of that, there seems to be a willingness, well, is it really that big of a deal? I just want to be really clear, please hear me, you do, 
Catholics who actually believe what the Roman Catholic Church teaches do not believe the same thing about how somebody is a Christian. In the Roman Catholic Church, justification, your standing with God, is a process of grace and works mingled together that is essential for the Roman Catholic Church to be a part of with the sacraments and everything that comes with it. And if you're going to be married to a Catholic, your, your kids will go to a Catholic Church and everything that comes with that. It is a big deal. And I'm sorry that it's hard. And I wish that somebody would ask you out. But please do not compromise devotion to Jesus. I'm happy to talk with you about this. But this is an important part of our discipleship with one another. Please do not follow your feelings. Your heart is deceitful and it cannot be trusted. You need God's word to guide you. Last thing, what if you are married, last thing on this one, what if you are married, what if you are married to a non-Christian? So let's say that you, you did marry somebody who is not a Christian, and now you hear this text, and you're like, oh, well, now I'm unequally yoked to an unbeliever, so I should not do that, so I'm going to divorce them. No. You should not sin in order to try and re Everybody wishes we could hit rewind and redo different things in our life. No. In God's providence, this is where you are, and God will give grace. He will help you. And there's, there's, there's a number of people in that situation who are here. Then there's also people who, they were, both, they were married as non-Christians, and then one of them gets converted, and now you're a believer, and you're like, what should I do? Should I divorce my spouse? Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 7, no. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So as long as there is no abuse and abandonment and unfaithfulness and all of that, God calls you to trust him and to remain faithful because you never know what the Lord's going to do, which is what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You never know what God might do. But don't do it alone. This is why the church is here, to be a family, to help you walk through that. Number four. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelieving business partners. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelieving business partners. So, when I was in Texas, there was a significant number of Christians who took this verse to mean that you should only ever do business with Christians. And they would use this thing called a shepherd's guide. How many of you have seen a shepherd's guide? You know what that is? Amen. So the shepherd's guide, which is basically a directory of Christian-owned and operated businesses. Sometimes Christian-owned. Anyway, you can get in that and say you're a Christian. Listen, you are free to do that if that's what you want to do. But I just want to be really clear, that's not what this, the point of this text. That's not what this is saying. At the same time, we must be mindful that Christians must do business as Christians do business. Honesty, integrity, forthrightness. We do not adopt practices that are opposed to Christ. You do not yoke yourself with somebody who's going in the opposite direction. So, so for instance, one thing that is very common, I know when I was not a believer, and when I was at work, when did you work hardest? When what was happening? When a boss was around, everybody knows that. But not if you're a Christian. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do you work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
do not be eye-pleasers. Christians say, no, we're going to work because I work for Jesus. I'm working hard regardless of who sees me. Or you may find ways to, to make some extra money, either by dodging taxes and then say, well, but Jesus says give to Caesar what is Caesar's. There's all kinds of different practices that you can get into in business, fudging numbers, using deceitful tactics, lying and slandering about uh, people who are you know, in, the, in a different company or whatever. Do not be yoked with crook, crooked business partners or you will go crooked. And Jesus cares about everything, including what you do at work. So I'm going to keep that one shorter because all the other things I've said before apply to that one. And now this one. Number five, do not be unequally yoked with unbelieving political partners. The email is info at drbc.org. You can drop any emails you'd like to about this. That's fine. Here we go. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelieving political partners. Now, as with others, we are not saying that you can't work with or work for unbelieving politicians or, or parties that have unbelievers in it. That's, that's not what's being said here. Government is a common grace institution given by God to help humanity order itself, to uphold justice, and to promote peace. It is a good God-given thing that is given to believers and non-believers alike. Believers who engage in the political world can reasonably partner with conservatives or progressives who are not believers, okay, for good purposes that are, that are good for the good of humanity. We want to help justice systems become you know, more upright, good. We want, we want to do police reform to make sure people use authority well, good. We want to make sure that immigration honors people and then figures out how to do things legally, great. You want to have health care that helps people, fine, great, good. The, those are all things that affect people's lives that Christians should feel freedom to partner in in helping to figure out how to, how to navigate those things. And this may also include partnering with other religions. So, for instance, Christians may partner with Catholics or Mormons on sanctity of life issues. So you don't have to have your own sanctity of life march, okay? You can go down there with all the Roman Catholics and Mormons and, and, and march if you like. You may partner with Muslims on freedom of religion issues. You may choose to do that because if they, well, they burn down the mosques, they're going to burn down the churches too. Or you could go the Christian nationalism route. That's another conversation, but that's, that's not what we're talking about right now. So situations like this require prayer and wisdom, okay? But you must be reasonable and you must be open with other mature believers to help you to know how to discern this. At the same time, we must be very careful what our political ambitions and desires can tempt us to do. You must not compromise character for a cause, no matter how great the cause may be in your own mind. Christians lose their ever-living mind sometimes over really important issues. For example, many well-meaning Christian conservatives who love pro-life causes, as I do, supported Donald Trump. Now, hold on. What I'm not saying is that there aren't political chess moves where you can support a sinful candidate who promises to advance causes that deeply matter, you're always going to be supporting a sinner. But what I am saying, 
and I will double down on this, is that many conservative evangelicals held up President Trump as a model Christian when there is no evidence that he's a believer. I just want to be really clear about that. If you voted for him, that is fine. That's between you and the Lord, figuring out your policies and all the things that come with that. The next election, whatever you're going to do, that's, that's a different conversation. What I am saying is you must not, must not, must not. Do not play the card of, well, he's a Christian. Please. Why would you gain nothing from that? It is evident that there's no reason to think that. And listen, if there's anything that our hearts should feel toward him, it's compassion. He's a lost man, as most of our presidents have been. Don't, doesn't know what is right and wrong. You don't need him to be a Christian to support causes that he, he would further for you. If that's what you think is the best way to steward your vote, that's between you and the Lord. There's tons of freedom in Christ to do that. But please, 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 don't blaspheme the name of Jesus. You don't need a president to be a Christian. That doesn't gain anything. Please. We're about to enter another cycle of, of electing a president. And who knows who's going to be the, the nominee really on either side, maybe. Remember that the most important thing is that you're a citizen of heaven. Yes, kingdom influences in the culture. Please, yes, do good things. But please, do not drag Jesus' name through the mud by associating it with people who are not Christians. It gains nothing. And I think it confuses a lot of people about what a Christian is. Do not be unequally yoked with un. Believers, the point is clear here, what he's making. We must not compromise our commitment to Christ. The world is watching. Our souls are affected by those that we are in relationship with. Be yoked with Jesus and follow him to heaven. Do not be unequally yoked with false teachers who are leading you into a false gospel. Do not be unequally yoked with friends who are not going to respect your Christianity and lead you away from Jesus and into sin. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever in, in marriage. Do not remain unequally yoked in business practices. If you can't honor Jesus in your job, then get a different job. And do not be unequally yoked in political situations. Again, this is not talking about how you're going to steward your vote. That's between you and the Lord, and I encourage you to use wisdom in that. But what I am saying is be very careful about how you use Jesus' name. This is the time of year when people use Jesus' name in vain way too much. That should foster some conversation over lunch. So how do we, how do, we do this then? Briefly and very importantly, respond to God's promises. Look at what he says here in 16.7. Since, or just look at 17.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion of the fear of the Lord. He says the reason that we cleanse ourselves from defilement is that we want to make sure that our whole selves is, is holy before God because we fear him and we love him. This is why we're not locking arms with the world, but we are locking arms with Christ and those who are following Christ this is the reason, verse 17, that we go out from their midst and be separate from them. 
is that God has made us promises and he's assured that he is our hope and our heart's desire. So hear this. One of the primary ways that we engage in spiritual warfare is by using God's promises. All five of those things that we just walked through, it is what spiritual warfare looks like. Those are the arenas, and there's many more. But those are the arenas where spiritual warfare happens. So the way that you remain yoked to Jesus and not yoked to people who are going to lead you astray is his promises. Ephesians 6 tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. You grab promises and you say, yes, but God said. 2 Peter 1.3 says it this way, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So what Paul does in verses 16 and 17 here is he draws from four Old Testament passages that from four prophets. Look at 16b here. God said, I will, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst to be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no, no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and ye shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul's saying, listen to me as I open up these Old Testament law and prophets and lay it before you. Hear what God says to you from Leviticus 26 about dwelling among his people, that you get his presence in Jesus by the Holy Spirit, so don't go and follow after the world. Listen to Isaiah 43, 6, that God will receive the captives of the exile as his sons and daughters. Well, in Christ, you've been brought back from the exile of sin, and he's adopted you, and God is now your father. Follow him. Or Isaiah 52, 11, that you will be his people and priests in his presence. That in Christ, you are the temple of God where worship happens, so may it be pure and pleasing to him. Or Ezekiel 20, 34, that God will welcome his people home from exile and bring them to himself. There's a hope before you of a new heaven and a new earth where you are exiled from sin forevermore, and you will be in his presence. He's saying these sorts of promises, grab them, receive them, believe them. So when, when the false prophets of the world says, hey, look, I've got riches for you and your best life now, you can say, no, in Christ, I have something more valuable. He will be my peace today and he will be my peace forevermore. I will cling to him. I will not listen to the false gospels of the world. Or when friends and family come and try and tempt you to, to indulge and do things that you know would dishonor the Lord, you say, no, fellowship with my Lord is better. I'm, I'm trusting him. He says, you are my people. Lord, help me. This is hard. And you, you pray with him, and you do that with other believers. When you're lonely and tired of being single, and a charming man or woman who comes who doesn't have the convictions of Christ, you turn to the Lord, and you say, Lord, help me. And you get other believers around you, and you lock arms. Help me to believe in God's promises that waiting on him is best, even if it means I never marry. And you give it to him, and you trust him. Or in business practices, or politics, or whatever it may be, and there's fleeting power and wealth and all this, know that we are citizens of his kingdom. That is our hope. Friends, this same text is used in Revelation 18, Revelation 18 to woo us out from the world that is being destroyed. Listen, y'all, I don't know when Jesus is coming back, um, but we are now nearer than when we first believed. We're nearer than when this fir sermon first began. God has given us promises. The church, the reason we've gathered today is to receive this word, digest this word together, encourage one another with promises, and point one another home. Listen, friends, we're almost home.
And Jesus will help us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Be united with Jesus, not yoked to the world. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to walk by faith and not by sight, that you would help us to love you as you are worthy. God, would you give us grace? Lord, as many of us look at, at all these ways that we could compromise, we see nothing but compromise, and we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We thank you that he is, he is a savior who gives grace to those who need it. So Lord, however we need it this morning, we bring it to you, and we ask for help and for healing and for mercy. And Lord, now as we sing once again unto you, we pray that we would sing with hearts that are not divided. And Lord, as we leave here in just a few moments, oh God, would you help us to trust you to be our strength. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.